it would be helpful, I think, if you just sort of kept, kept uh, an eye on the passage as we go through. Helps you to concentrate too, doesn't it? And, uh, and also, always to check out that the preacher is actually saying what's in there, because God's word has authority. So let's just do that. And let's pray as we start. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for teaching us in this passage about truth and about freedom. And we do pray that you will bring truth to our minds and our hearts and our wills this morning and lead us increasingly into your freedom for your glory. In your own precious name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation which has sort of turned upside down and really surprised you. Maybe perhaps one where you started out feeling that you were the one rather aggrieved and you had reason to complain or that you wanted an explanation from somebody who was wrongly accusing you. So you go into it feeling a bit miffy. And then somehow or other, the tables turn completely and you end up feeling as if well, realising that you were in fact the one in the wrong. It was always happening to people who came to challenge Jesus. The Jews nearly always began a conversation with Jesus, believing that they were going to put this upstart on the spot. And once and for all, they were going to show that he didn't have authority, that he didn't understand God's word, that he was an ignoramus from nowhere, and that this was going to clinch the deal, that they had all it took and were the only ones to be listened to. However, they always ended up themselves being shown up as inconsistent, and ignorant of God's word and unspiritual. It must have been maddening. Indeed, from this passage, it's perfectly clear that it was. We know that it, it says, doesn't it, this, Jesus says, you are ready to kill me. And by the end of this passage, they're actually pulling, picking up stones to do exactly that. Clearly drove them wild. So although to us, this passage may sound like a rather sort of involved theological discussion, for the Jews at the time, it was clearly, literally, a life or death issue. And actually, as we go into it, I think we'll be able to see that for us in our contemporary walk with God, it is also really key. Well, the passage gets argumentative, but it begins with Jesus' fantastically positive pronouncement if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But instead of the response being, whoopee, fantastic, tell us more, the Jews are offended. Freedom? We don't need freedom. We're not slaves to anybody. What are you talking about? We're descended from the great Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. The equivalent of this is like you're meeting a great doctor, perhaps socially rather than in a consulting room, and him saying to you, follow my advice and you will get well from the great superbug. And you might say, I haven't got a superbug. And the doctor says quietly, everyone has it. And unless you recognize that, you won't get better. But you can get better 
as long as you follow my advice. I wonder what that would trigger in your head. I imagine probably something like, who is he? What are his qualifications? I must go and check out his CV. And that's precisely what the Jews felt. And the first thing they started with was parading their own qualifications, which were, in Jewish terms, absolutely top-notch. We are Abraham's descendants. You can't say higher than that. And we've never been slaves to anyone. We couldn't be better connected, they're saying, and compared with you, well, compared with everybody, um, we are right at the top of the theological tree, so we've got nothing to learn. But at once, they are actually wrong-footed. For a start, they seem to have forgotten their own history. They certainly have been slaves, and many times over. The whole story of Moses is about their being set free from hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt. They were also slaves in Babylon, and right when they were talking then, they're under the heel of Roman rule. But actually, Jesus isn't talking on the level of just historical accuracy. He's talking about their spiritual lives. And he's saying, you may think you are free when you do everything you want, but you aren't. You have to keep on doing it once you start making wrong choices. As soon as you do something wrong, a little link is forged, and then another one, and then another one, until you are chained up. Well, we may sadly have experience, or at least we're aware, that maybe a person might say, I'm free to take drugs, and they think of it as a freedom. But we, as observers of that, might say, but you will shortly not be free. You think you're in charge of them, but actually in the end, they will take charge of you. There is a a slavery in that. Now, they don't realise, of course, that that is a step to slavery. But they will realise it once they are gripped by it. Well, Jesus summarised this spiritually by saying... Everyone, it's in verse 34, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So that's what our doctor means when he's saying, if you're breathing, you have the superbug. It's endemic in every human being. Do you remember, earlier in this chapter, uh, the Jewish religious leaders dragged a woman caught in adultery before Jesus and wanted him to pronounce on her fate, which by law could have been stoning. And Jesus put her accusers on the spot by saying, if any of you are free from sin, then you can cast the first stone. And one by one, they slunk away. As we would have had to, too, had we been there at the time. Because which of us can possibly say, I am free from sin? Those self-willed responses come so easily, don't they? I regret to tell you, my mother said she wasn't absolutely sure that she believed in original sin until I was born. (laughs) I was her oldest, and the fact is, you do not have to teach a child to disobey. You don't have to teach them to cover up doing something wrong by telling a lie. You don't have to teach them to be rude or biff another child to get a Duplo truck. It just comes naturally, doesn't it? But you have to teach 
telling the truth. You have to teach sharing and, and being kind. It is endemic in us to, um, well, one of the evangelists calls it swerving to rot. And that's true. We easily, in our natural selves, swerve to rot. In the Alpha Course, which some of you have probably been on, you may remember that when they're talking of sin, they sometimes say that if you are a particularly good person, you may only, in a day, do one bad thing. Just imagine having a day when you only do one bad thing. And say one bad thing and think one bad thought. Just imagine only thinking one bad thought in a day. Okay, so you're an amazing person if that's the case. That's three sins a day. So that is roughly 100 sins a month. So that is about 1,200 sins a year. And you're how old? <laughs> well, <clears throat> we should be deeply heartstruck by that sort of calculation, shouldn't we? We should actually be appalled at our sins. How naturally they bubble up in us. How much of a grip they have on us. How much they grieve God and separate us from him. But, let's go back to the beginning of the passage. The fact is, Jesus isn't condemning. Like the doctor, he's giving an accurate diagnosis so that we can be set free. He says we need to recognise that we've got the bug, that very real problem of sin. And then he says, if the Son sets you free... You shall be free indeed. Now, when we hear things about sin, and when we even review the last two days, the enemy wants to grab our minds and push us into condemnation. When we do something we regret, we not only regret it, we can easily go into, oh, I can't believe it, there I go again. But we don't need to go down that, that route. We can remember Jesus' extraordinary offer of forgiveness and freedom. This is not bad news. This is realism about where we are without Jesus. And it gives us the solution, the cure, as it were, straight away. Because Jesus is making us an astounding offer of spiritual health to those who will acknowledge their need and ask him for it. But let's just go back and continue to follow this conversation through from verse 37. Jesus picks up the Jews' own claim to be the spiritual successors of Abraham. And he challenges them that, on that. He says, <clears throat> in effect, yes, physically you may descend from Abraham, but if you were truly his successors, you'd have the same characteristics. You'd recognise God when he speaks. Abraham is called the friend of God. As it is, you do the opposite. You are rejecting God's truth as I speak it. So that shows that you are the spiritual successors of a totally different spiritual father. So then they raise the bar further. We're not just Abraham's children, we're God's children. And Jesus replies, if that were true, you would love me for my father's sake. You'd recognize the truth. Because I am the truth, and so is he. But as it is, you are completely deceived, and even dead set against the truth. And that shows that your spiritual ancestry, 
far from coming from Father God and Abraham, is from the devil, the father of lies. Now, this is the most incredibly offensive diagnosis. One has to say, Jesus is the ultimate provocation here, really, isn't he? Can't you just feel how their pride and their anger would rise up? And it would, of course, feed their original fury. By what authority does he dare say such things? And in answer to that question, as so often, Jesus asks one of his own in verse 46. And it's an extraordinary question. One that no one else anywhere has ever really dared to ask. It is, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Again, how long would it take for someone to come up with proof that you aren't perfect? I just dread to think how easily anybody would be able to say how instantly provable it is that I am far from perfect. Whereas Jesus is able to ask his hearers, has anyone ever heard or seen me do anything wrong, ever? And they don't even attempt an answer to that, because they can't. Because Jesus was living a perfect, God-honouring life among them. Now, for us, as for them, this question of Jesus' diagnosis of our spiritual health is really fundamental. And my mind went back to a man who was very offended when he heard something of this diagnosis of spiritual health. Uh, Peter and I, when Peter was training for the ministry, went off on a, on a mission to Barrow and Furnace. And uh, we all went off as part of the team in twos, and we got sent together um, to different home groups. And we got sent to a very respectable home indeed with a home group of around 12 or 15 people. And our host was the ex-mayor of Baron Furness. And he was also the leading light in the Rotarians in Baron Furness. So he was an extremely good man. And he had spent a lot of his life doing lots of very busy and good things. And uh, Peter and I um, did alternate evenings. And on that evening, I was the one who was due to do the talk. And I did a talk which was extremely simple, and I'll just wave my hands about, and you will have heard this illustration plenty of times. It is the simplest possible illustration of two cliffs with a great big gap between them. Maybe you have seen a, a demonstration. And you draw a picture and you say, this cliff is man and this cliff is God, and a great chasm formed by our sin separates us from God. And then you draw a cross with its arms sitting so that one arm of the cross is on the man's side and one is on the God's side. And explain that because Jesus died on the cross, our sin can be wholly forgiven. This must be ringing bells with many, many people. Our sin can be wholly forgiven. And so I emphasized that we were all sinful. I said that we were all separated from God and that going to church and doing good things was not enough. We needed Jesus to save us. And I also then talked about the thief next to Jesus on the cross. And I said, there is an example of a man who had lived a bad life. But Jesus turned to him because he recognized who Jesus was and he asked to be forgiven, even though he had no time because he'd already been crucified. He had no time to do good things. 
Jesus still said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And as I was giving this talk, my host was turning from pink to red, and from red to puce. And his hands were, he was moving forward in his chair, and his hands were gripping the end of the armchair arms more and more convulsively. And in the end, he sort of roared into an upright position, and he said between clenched teeth across the group at me, Are you meaning to tell me that I have done good all my life, and it's not good enough? Well, you can imagine the atmosphere. And I said very quietly, yes. (laughs) And he roared out into the kitchen where his wife was making a trolley of tea and coffee. And uh, it was a bit of a moment, as you can imagine, in the group. And then I said something else. And then it would have been very comic if it hadn't been so sort of desperate. The double doors of the hatch flew open from the kitchen and his furious purple face appeared in the hole and he said and if I murdered my wife but asked Jesus for forgiveness and really meant it I could be forgiven and I said yes and and the door slammed shut and I thought oh my goodness the barren furnace you know tomorrow's thing is going to say you know Mission team sparks murder inquiry as he murders his wife in the kitchen. <laughs> and um, it was the first time actually in my life, and I was 20, it was the first time that I had ever come across the extreme offence caused to a good man by hearing that his goodness was not going to get him to heaven. And the diagnosis of sin in his life absolutely chewed him up. And actually, it ought, we ought to take it that seriously too. Because actually, even if you have understood about salvation, we ought to know that that is what we've been brought from, that our own goodness really isn't good enough. Everything depends on salvation. And so wonderfully, we don't have to remain with offence I don't know what happened to that man. We were only there for a few days, and I pray that the Holy Spirit worked in his life, because wonderfully, at least one can say he had heard the truth clearly. And I'm more worried about people who are complacent than I am, actually, about people who are that offended, because at least they've got it. The question is whether he then responded to the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Now, we know that it is far more about than just acknowledging the truth. We can be right, and in many, many ways, the Pharisees were right. They knew scripture very, very well, in many ways. But actually, Jesus is saying, we shouldn't just know it. We need our whole lives to be in sync with his truth. And therefore, he works in our minds. Do you see in verse 44, Jesus talking to the devil says, When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the fact is, the devil's strategy is to, de- is to deceive us as individuals, as couples, as families, as churches, out into the community, as nations. He wants to get us to believe those things which are not in alignment with God's truth. 
And so a little practical tip, if I may, that I have found really useful, which is when I recognize a sin pattern in my life, I often try and track it back, and you can do the same. And quite often, I think maybe almost always, when I see a sin pattern and I track it back, I come to a core lie. Let me give you an example. For instance, um, sometimes I get into a pattern of worrying. Anybody else here worry ever? Um, And my imagination gets going totally ridiculous. I go into one of these worrying things. If I track that, that back, I can say, why am I worrying? Ah, because I am fearful that God won't really look after me. Now, technically, I know that he will. But the fact is, it shows that in the depths of me, I am somewhat deceived. I have not really believed that. I believe it in my head, but I haven't really got it. So, I need to repent of being deceived and go back to that truth. God loves me. He is faithful. He will look after me. And that deals not just with the behavior of worrying. It deals with the root of the worrying Similarly, I find that if I'm confused about something, um, it's often because I have stopped listening to God. Why haven't I been listening to God? Because I actually sometimes think that he won't speak to me. Well, that's another lie. I technically know that's not the case. God speaks, you know, my sheep hear my voice. Well, then, my behavior is based on the fact that I haven't really got the truth. I go back, I repent of that core lie, and then wonderfully, the confusion clears because I've got the truth right there in the center again. And this is how Jesus gradually gets hold of our mind by pointing out where we've been deceived or confused or where we're not based on the Bible and where lots of us do double think. Do you ever do double think? Technically, I believe this, but actually, I'm going around thinking this stuff. You need to hold the one against the other and say, is this what Jesus says? Oh, no, doesn't fit. Well then, which do I get rid of? Obviously, the stuff where I've been confused. That way, he has our minds for his own. Secondly, he wants to work in our wills, and that's to do with obedience. And uh, as Jesus is life grows in us, then increasingly we will want to live according to his priorities. And I know what would Jesus do, maybe a cliche now because of the little wristbands and things, but the fact is it is a really good question. And as the Spirit of God moves in our lives, he will begin to nudge us and make us uncomfortable about the things that don't really fit with with wanting to glorify Jesus in our lives. And, of course, we then resist the Holy Spirit, because who wants to live uncomfortably? We want just to keep on feeling comfortable, don't we? But as we are like David in the Psalms, we can pray that prayer. If there is any wicked way in me, show me what it is. We can come to Jesus and say, I really do want to keep changing. Not just to get saved once and then sit on the welcome mat, as it were, inside heaven, just the same as we were just outside. We want to say, no, keep making me more like Jesus. So, how does one recognize where one isn't free? What is this freedom stuff that we are being told about here? Well, let's get really practical. 
Think of a relationship that you've got, a member of the family, a friend, a colleague, someone at work, whoever it might be, which is less than perfect. Can you think of a relationship which is less than perfect? Are you able to respond to that person exactly as Jesus would? Are you unfailingly generous in your your, um, interpretation of what they say? Or do you find cynicism coming up? Well, they would, wouldn't they? Are you always loving if they are sarcastic or mean or difficult to you? Do you always talk about them to other people in unfailingly generous and warm and godly ways? Do you protect their reputation and their back in relation to other people? Do you ever repay negativity with negativity? Did you respond to any of that? If you did, you are a normal human being. This is how all of us are in our natural selves, isn't it? And that is why we all need to discover the wonderful truths that are in this passage. Because Jesus says that he can set us free from what comes naturally by planting his spirit to be our new life. And only he can. One, say the, you know, say it was Ebola. One Ebola victim can't cure another. We can't cure one another. Only somebody who is infection free can do that. And only Jesus can. Because he died the only life that has ever been given free from sin and because of his dying that agonizing death he has made the way plain for us to leave our guilt behind to leave those sin patterns behind to leave even the details the worrying the confusion that stuff it can be left behind and the spirit can reign in us so wonderfully jesus death brings us ultimate freedom forever but also freedom now. One last example, and that is my husband Peter and travelling. Peter is slightly claustrophobic, um, and he's also, um, he loads, one of his phrases when we're in, um, well, let's put this in the past tense, because actually this is the point, is God's actually really changed it. In airports, he used to loathe being what he called herded about. Um, he loathes, you know, having to go here and being in a group and hanging around and having no control over, you know, what happens and then an indistinct, you know, voice that you can't work out comes over the tannoy. And you think, oh, didn't give me any information, don't know what's going on. And it used to wind him up. And it didn't only wind him up then, it even wind him up before he started the journey because he knew what was coming at the airport. And he was therefore a man who... Who just, he just he, arriving is great. Holiday is wonderful. But that bit at airports and being herded about was horrible for him. And not fab to walk along next to either. <laughs> As you can well imagine. And the wonderful thing is, he began to apply these principles in a really practical way. Firstly, he starts at home. And he repents ahead of time and says... Lord, I know that I am prone 
to pride and to anger and to fury and to resentment and to all of that stuff. And I am really sorry for that natural stuff that bubbles up in me in airports. And I want to declare that I am your son and I can and will behave in a way that glorifies you. And when, as soon as that stuff starts to coming up, I am going to reject it and push it to one side. And I am going to walk in peace. I'm going to be delightful, etc. And he has a proper little prayer time before we get. This is wonderful stuff. It's much more important than packing. And when we get to the airport, I have to say it is wonderful. The pattern is broken. He is a happy traveller. I am a happy wife. It is actually like he's never taken it out on anyone. I want to make clear he's, he's not nasty with me he's he's just a bundle of tension and he is no longer a bundle of tension now many of us probably you are perfectly gorgeous in airports but most of us have got some contexts which set us off a particular relationship at a particular context the wonderful thing is these truths work not just in theory your actual pattern of life can change and you can no longer be a victim of those swings of emotion. And when it comes down to it, it's all because of that final part of the passage where Jesus, when they finally push him and they say, oh, for goodness sake, we cannot work this out at all. Who are you? He goes back, as we were hearing from Kenneth last week, to that great name of God revealed at the burning bush. I am Ego aimi, he says. It, it is a, it's far more than simply a present tense. It is the name of God, which is the name of eternity. It says, I am the ultimate being. They did not miss that. They knew exactly what he was claiming. I am God. I am the only I am. And that's why they picked up stones to stone him. But for us, that revelation of who he is, is the ultimate truth and brings us to the ultimate freedom. So let's let our chains go wherever they exist. Recognize them. It's not a negative, it's a positive. Recognize them and know that Jesus can and will cut through them because he is God. He can, he loves you, and Jesus is longing for his nature, his character, to be visible in the world through us. So that when you change, your colleagues at work will say, well, frankly, he used to be a bit of a nightmare when such and such happened, but he's really nice now. I wonder what happened. When in a family, patterns such as I've talked about change, that is glorifying to God. So let's ask for and receive this freedom with such gratitude. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the enormity of your truths. But we thank you too that they are really practical and really do make such a difference in our lives here and now. And we want to praise you and thank you that you have such love for us and you don't reject us when we are stuck in sin patterns, but you offer us a way out. And Lord Jesus, 
we know that if you left us on our own, we would die of that superbug, which is sin. But you have come and through your death offered us freedom. And we don't want to be like that guy in, in Barrow who was offended by your offer. We want to say yes. Yes once and for all to salvation through you. And ongoing yeses each week, each day, to being changed by you and giving you freedom to make yourself more present and more visible in our lives so that you are glorified and so that the world discovers who you are and what your love is like. In Jesus' name, amen.